as an accomplished archer. He had shot many arrows, but none as important as the one that he would shoot that wounding day. Today, the prince's renowned marksmanship would seal the fate of a notorious fugitive. A lawless shepherd boy who, if he lived, would undoubtedly take the prince's earthly birthright and capture the throne as the future king of their beloved nation. Prince Jonathan reaches into his quiver, readies his bow, and aims carefully, knowing that the flight of this arrow would determine certain life or certain death. Good morning, everybody. My name is John Bowsman, and I am so excited that you guys are here today and to be a part of the series that we're calling Stories of Old. We're going through these stories of people from what is called the Old Testament, which is kind of the first of two sections that we kind of separate the Bible into. And the way that this story begins, the way the story reads right now, it kind of sounds cinematic in nature, does it not? It's something that you can see on the big screen. It's something that you can end up seeing happening. It's almost kind of like a Mel Gibson movie that kind of unfolds before our eyes. And what's interesting is that I would say that in my story, in my life, I've grown up in the church. My dad's a pastor. I assure you, I have heard my fair share of sermons in my life, whether in my home or on Sundays. But I have never heard anyone talk about Jonathan. His story is kind of lost in between two other stories. His story is kind of lost in between King Saul, who's his father, and then his best friend, who ends up becoming the next king, King David. And his story is just kind of lost in between those, but if I were to be looking at his story, and I would summarize that in one word, I would summarize his story as faithful faithful. When you look at his life, there's nobody that I can think of throughout Scripture that more consistently and more ardently exhibits this trait of faithful than Jonathan. Of course, from Jesus. Let's give him that, all right? But what's interesting is that when I look at that word faithful, let's unpack that for a second. When I think of the word faithful, I think of three things. The definitions that the dictionary gives us are this. Faithful strict or thorough in the performance of duty. We might think of like a faithful servant or a faithful soldier, somebody that follows through on what they're supposed to do, no matter the cost. Faithful, true to one's word, promises, vows. You're a person that is faithful to your word. When you say that you're going to do something, you do that. And then faithful, being steady in allegiance or affection. Loyal, constant. Whenever I say the word faithful, I normally write things to movies in my mind. It's kind of my thing. I hear something and it triggers it. So when I hear the word faithful, I immediately think of the movie Homeward Bound. Okay? If you're not familiar with this movie, it's a movie about three animals that get separated. They try to get back to their owners. And in there, at the very beginning, one of the characters, his name is Shadow, and it's a golden retriever. And if I think of what is a personification of the word faithful, I think of a golden retriever, right? 
And so at the very beginning, they show this golden retriever named Shadow, and one of the other characters is describing him, and he goes, Shadow was loyal. Shadow was faithful. Shadow was a chump. And it's this humorous look at it, but if I'm honest in my own life, when we talk about the word faithful, we think of it as this great and noble character trait. That it's something that either in your life or mine that we would probably want to aspire to in some way, shape, or form, or we would at least appreciate. But in my life, it's just my own experience that as I've gone through life, I've kind of seen that faithful, that character quality, is shown far too little. And that this character quality of being faithful so often is a character quality of convenience. It's a character quality often of convenience. Here's what I mean. If you don't agree with me, bless you. If you don't agree with me, if you are not on board with this, let me give you one example. I'm going to give you one word. Moving. If you want to test how faithful people are in your life, how good friends or good family, how loyal or constant they are in your life, ask them to help you move. Right? You're sitting there like, man, dude, bro, I love you. You my bro. Alright? Like, I do anything for you. You need me, you call me. Man, I am so glad to hear you say that, because like in two months, like I'm gonna be moving. I could really use some help. And immediately the guy's like, dude, I, I, I you know, I'm I'm sorry, I'm really, really busy that day. I didn't say what day. <laughs> I never said what day. Yeah, I'm busy a lot of days. So but hey, if you want to get, you know, drink later, watch the game, I'm all on board for that. As someone who has moved a lot in his life, I'm always amazed at the people that show up and the people that don't. And then to take it a step further, when we move, do you help move, but do you do it with a sense of expectation? Do you do it with a sense of expectation that, well, man, if I help you move, then when it comes time, like, you're going to help me move, right? It's kind of this unwritten rule, this unwritten law between you and I that, like, hey, quit pro pro. I help you, you help me. We're not going to say it, but I kind of know it. And if you don't help me, you're going to hear about it. <laughs> right? So it's this idea of convenience. But in the small things, just think about this for a moment. In the small things, if we were to be more faithful, if we were to be more loyal and constant in our lives, in our relationships, what might that look like? Right? If we were to just turn the knob up a bit, we're just to step that up just a bit. What might that look like? Think about it at your workplace. If you at your work, whatever that may be, if you were to just take that up a notch and to be more dutiful in that, to be more loyal to your employees, to your employers, to the people around you, and to be more constant, to be faithful to them, and to do that with no expectation. You're not doing it because you're like, man, if I do this, if, I, if I'm loyal to them, then I'm going to get that promotion. right? If I'm constant, if I put in all this hard work, if I'm dutiful, I'm going to get that bonus. How would that look like? What kind of impact would we have if we just took that up a notch? Think about that as we talk about friends and family, and we think about that as well in our lives, whether if we took that up a notch in those relationships, if we were that faithful friend, if we were that golden retriever, if you will, what might that look like? How would that change not only our relationships, but how would that change the relationships that come to us? Because when you see someone that exhibits that, that is wonderful and rare and beautiful. And I don't care how it may feel when you're doing it, it does not go unnoticed. 
When I was talking about this earlier this week, I started to think about in my life, I said, man, do I, how, how would that look like? And I started to think about a friendship that I have with a guy named Brian. I'm originally from Indiana. I moved out of Colorado three years ago, and Brian is one of my closest friends. We've been friends since middle school. I'm 32, that's over half of my life, which is a pill to swallow and say, but that's true, it's half my life ago. So Brian has been my friend for more than half of my life. And if, if I start going through all the things we've done together, he has some of my best and most favorite memories of my life. I have gone on road trips with that guy. I have done stupid stuff as a high school kid with that guy, shooting fireworks and running around just doing like stupid guy stuff. He also took me out and I shot my first deer because of Brian. And he taught me how to field dress it and we butchered it together. And I'm not going to I went like last with the Mohicans on this thing, all right? <laughs> Like, I literally, after I shot it and it did its thing, like, I literally waited, I climbed down, I walked on over, and I, like, started putting my hands up, I laid down, and I was like, thank you for giving your life. Like, I mean, <laughs> I want to be one with you. And that is, like, an amazing memory. It's an amazing feeling of accomplishment and achievement. But when I think about Brian, and I think about what is my favorite, all the experiences I've had with this guy, what is my favorite and best memory? It's riding along with him on Saturdays, riding shotgun as he went cold calling on his customers, driving around the state of Indiana, jamming out to music. That's it. I would, all the memories that I had, if I could go back and relive one, that's it for me. Because it was a beautiful moment where I was like, I'm not in this because of anything I'm getting out of it. Riding along with somebody when they just drive around doing their job, it ain't super sexy. That's not what you spend your Saturdays thinking about, right? But I have him for a whole day of just him and I. Just that time together to be with each other. How sweet and great a gift is that? That it's not about the activity, it's not about what we're going to be doing together or what I can get out of it. It's solely for him because I get to be with him. What would that look like in our lives if we were to be faithful to one another? Regardless of what that looked like, regardless of the expectations, none of that aside, what would that look like? I say that because the story that we're going to get into, the story of Jonathan, is one that he exhibits this faithfulness, but he shows it on this grand scale. It's not in the small things that he shows necessarily even, it's on the big life and death scale. So when I talk about it being this idea of convenience, when you take it up a notch, when it is like, man, I'm, my choice is life or death here. Am I going to be faithful or am I not? I can't think of many stakes that are bigger than that. I really can't. And so I'm under the belief that if you can do that in the big things, in the life and death things, then you can surely show that in the little things, in the everyday things. His story is scattered through two books scattered through 1st and 2nd Samuel. And as we dive into it today, I want us to be thinking about what would it look like, this aspect of faithfulness, if we move that up in our lives. But then I also want you to hold on to see at the end what happens as a result of that. And I want to give two caveats before we jump in with our time today. The first is this. There are going to be a lot of foreign names that we're going to be seeing in this story. Some that, quite frankly, I'm not even sure if I'm always saying correctly. I've never seen all vowels and consonants put together like that. It's a little hard. So my caveat is, one, 
Don't lose me in that. Right? Don't lose me in that. They're important, but for our time and conversation today, they're not as important. I don't want you to lose me in that. Okay? And the second is that as we're going through, we're looking at his life, and so we're going to be progressing through 1st and 2nd Samuel. We're going to have that up here on the screen, and I'm going to be reading it from here. If you want to follow along, you're welcome to. If you don't have a Bible, you're welcome to grab one. We have them on there. It's a gift for you. But feel free to ride along with me. Follow along the screen. It's going to be an exciting ride. So before we jump in, let's pray. Father God, we just ask that as we enter this time together, as we enter this space and this conversation, that whatever you have for, for all of us here, for the people in the future like God, I just pray that your spirit would be present, that you would speak, that you would speak through to all of us. God, we love you and we thank you for this time together. We ask this in your wonderful, powerful, and beautiful name. I have to give you the backstory. Before we jump into the story, Jonathan, I have to give you this backstory. We enter the story, and there's a group of people, there's a nation called Israel. They're called the Israelites. And they have this very unique relationship with. And they start having this dialogue with God, and like, God, you know what? We, you're great, but we really want a king. We're looking around. Everyone else has a king. We don't have a king. We really want one. And God's like, mm, I don't think it's a good idea. I really don't think it's a good idea. And like, well, we really want one. And God's like, you know what? Fine. You guys, we're going to have a king. So the Israelites, they get their first king. His name's Saul. And on paper, on aesthetic, he looks like a great guy. Strong, he's good looking. Why not? You gotta pick a king, sounds like two decent criteria. So they pick King Saul. He gets to be the first one. The problem is, you'll see later on, Saul's got some pretty big flaws. He's got anger issues, really bad anger issues. He's insecure, he's paranoid, and pretty much goes straight up crazy. So we enter Saul, and what's happening in this moment is Saul essentially is waiting to light the sacrifice. He's got this marching where he's like, all right, you guys set it up, and then we're going to have this guy named Samuel. He's a prophet. You're going to wait for him. Samuel's going to come over, and he's going to light it. And then you're going to be good, and then we're going to go forth, and we're going to do what we're going to do. And so they set it all up, and Saul's got it all ready, and he's getting impatient. He decides he's not going to wait anymore, and he's like, light him up. So they light it up, and almost instantaneously after they light it up, guess who pops around the corner? Samuel, the guy that they were supposed to wait for. So Samuel looks at him, and he has this dialogue with him, and he just says this, these words. He says, looks at Saul, and he goes, but now your kingdom, your kingdom will not endure. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart and appointed him ruler of his people because you have not kept the Lord's command. It's their first king, and he messed up, and he messed up big. Before we even meet the person that we're going to be talking about today, we find out that his dad made a pretty big blunder. And not only did he make a big blunder, but that means that the guy we're about to meet, Jonathan, the prince, the one who would be next in line after daddy, yeah, that's not going to happen. 
And it has nothing to do with Jonathan. But it has everything to do with Saul and the person that God wanted to lead his people. Because he says, but now your kingdom to Saul, your kingdom will not endure. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart and appointed him ruler of his people. Because you have not kept the Lord's name. That's a bad deal. I don't know about you guys, but I would be ticked. Like, Dad, like, we just got here. Like, I haven't even unpacked yet. Like, I'm still figuring out what room I want in this freaking place, and you just lost it for us. Because you couldn't wait. You couldn't listen. I don't know about you, but I personally would have a very hard time with that. Both, honestly, in respecting my dad after that, and if I'm honest about myself, I probably would internalize. I probably would look at myself like, what, am I not good enough? Was it me? Like, India, was it me, God? Like, am I just, am I not, can I, cut, can I not cut the mustard? And what we find later on is that's absolutely not the case. It's not. It's a bad rap. It's a bad rap for Jonathan before we even meet him out of the game. But what's interesting is that Jonathan doesn't do that. Jonathan doesn't walk away. He still remains faithful to God and faithful to his father through it all. And this is where we end up meeting him in our story today. So, in this moment, there's this group of people called the Philistines. All right? They are the rivals, they are the arch enemies, if you will, of the Israelites. To put it in today's terms, it is the Denver Broncos versus the New England Patriots. I mean, forget it. It's anybody versus the New England Patriots. <laughs> there is a rivalry there that is big and it is ugly. And they are going at it. And the Philistines pull what I think is quite possibly a brilliant move. I don't know. I've read the book Art of War. I didn't understand it, but I like seeing that on Facebook. It's got some good quotes. I don't understand much about military strategy, but this one, this one sounds pretty damn good. The Philistines go on a raid, and they raid their blacksmiths. It is really hard to raise arms when you got nothing in your arms to raise. <laughs> you cannot go to battle if you don't have something to go to battle with. And so the Philistines go on a raiding party, and here they find themselves, the Israelites are like, oh, man, we got two swords. That's it. Let's do an inventory count. Everybody look around. We got two swords. And we're supposed to go to war? We're supposed to go to battle with these guys? And so the lines are kind of drawn, and so the campments are made, and we find ourselves in this moment where King Saul has some people around him, and Jonathan's there, and they give one, Saul to the king, or one sword to King Saul and one sword to Prince Jonathan. Seems like a fair way to divvy it up. And they're hanging out, and eventually Jonathan's like, you know what? I'm tired of waiting. I am just not fine with just sitting around and doing nothing. We serve a God that I believe in, and you know what? Turns to his armor bearer, like, I'm going to head out. You going to come with me? And so they quietly leave. No one notices. Not Saul, nobody notices. And this is where we enter not only the story, but for me personally, I think it's one of the coolest stories in the Bible. My personal opinion. It's one of my favorites. It can be found in 1 Samuel chapter 14. We're going to start at verse 4. We're going to go to verse 23. It says this. On each side of the pass that Jonathan intended to cross to reach the Philistine outpost was a cliff. 
One was called Bozes and the other Sine. Remember what I said about them? Don't get lost in words here. One was called Bozes and the other was Sine. One cliff stood to the north toward Michmash, the other south toward Geba. Jonathan said to his young armor bearer, Come, let's go over to the outposts of those uncircumcised men, meaning the Philistines. Perhaps the Lord will act in our behalf. Nothing can hinder the Lord from saving, whether by many or by few. There's two things I want to look at there. One is this phrase, perhaps. Perhaps. Perhaps the Lord will act on our behalf. Maybe. I don't know. I don't know if he is. But I know who he is. And I'm willing to give it a shot. The funny part about this is, like, if it were me, if I was the honor I'm like, look, I like you. Like, I mean, I really like you. Like, you're a cool guy and all. Um, but I kind of want a little bit more than that. I mean, I don't know how many over there, but I'm just counting it's you, me, and one sword. And I got a feeling that, like, we're not doing paper, rock, scissors for who gets the sword. <laughs> I kind of want a little bit more assurance before we go take on all these guys, right? The second thing I want to point out is what Jonathan says here. It's going to be important for later on in the story. He says, nothing can hinder the Lord from saving. Nothing can hinder the Lord from saving, whether by many or by few. He has faith in God that no matter what, God wants to do it. It doesn't matter what the odds are. It doesn't matter what the obstacle is. God can do it. Nothing can hinder God from saving. Remember that. Verse 7. This is, this is what the armor bearer says. This is great. Do all that you have in mind, his armor bearer said. Go ahead. I am with you, heart and soul. Dang! <laughs> Like, this guy is a young kid, but talk about the kahunas, right? Like, oh, man, I'm oh, in. Like, I am with you. This is that cinematic moment we're talking about. Like, I am with you, heart and soul. Like, <laughs> it's going to go down, and I am with you, my friend. I am with you. Jonathan said, come on, then. We will cross over toward them and let them see us. This is not a sneak attack. One, I wouldn't do it that way. I'd be like, listen, we're going to be very covert. We're going to kind of sneak in here. No, tell you what, we're going, and we're going over they're going to see us coming. We're going to cross towards them. And if they say to us, wait there until we come to you. Wait there until we come to you. Stay where you are, and we will not go up to them. But if they say, come up to us, we will climb up. Remember those cliffs. We will climb up, because that will be our sign that the Lord has given them into our hands. It's... He's literally saying, hey, if they say stay down here, we're going to stay down here. But if they say come on up, we're going to climb that cliff. We're going to go Mission Impossible style on this thing. We're going to free do that. And then guess what? I'm taking that as a sign that God's going to give it to us. That is a man of faith. That's a man of faith. So both of them show themselves to the Philistine outposts. Look, said the Philistines. The Hebrews are crawling out of the holes they were hiding in. Pause for a second. I think everybody needs to work on their insults back then. <laughs> right? Like, we just see, like, we're going to go after those uncircumcised men. Look, they're coming out of their holes. Like, come on. Like, <laughs> do better than this. The men of the outpost shouted to Jonathan and his armor bearer, Come up to us, and we'll teach you a lesson. That's the sign. That's the sign. So Jonathan said to his armor bearer, Climb up after me. 
the Lord has given them into the hand of Israel. We're going to free Solo climb this bad boy. And this is not wearing Nikes back then, right? We're talking like, hey, I got a young kid, I got a big sword, and I got sandals, and I'm probably armored out. I don't know about you, I've done some climbing in my day, and I'm tuckered out after like a little bit, right? Like I get like three holds up, and I'm like, all right, cool, stop, we're going to take a break. Pull the line, hand me a drink. Like that is, that is not, so he free climbs up there. Jonathan climbed up, using his hands and feet with his armor bearer right behind him. The Philistines fell before Jonathan, and his armor bearer followed and killed behind him. And that first attack, Jonathan and his armor bearer killed some 20 men in an area of about half an acre. I'm from Indiana, so I'm pretty familiar with an acre is, but I kind of have to see it with cornfields. Yeah. Like, I can't picture an acre unless there's like soybeans or corn. I'm like, well, all right, it's about 50 slots down there and to the right. That's an acre. So at half an acre, so we all have it, since we're all Broncos people in this room probably, is about half of a football field. So from the, the touchdown, from the end zone, to the 50-yard line, that's about half an acre. So they climb up, they get up there, and everybody falls before Jonathan. The armor bearer cleans up after him, and they knock out about 20 guys in about half a football field. With the one sword. Dang, that's awesome. I mentioned Last of the Mohicans earlier. That's Last of the Mohicans. Here's what's interesting. Jonathan acted on faith. He stood down there and was like, look, if they say to go up, I'm taking on faith that God is going to deliver them. That God's going to show up. And it doesn't just start or stop with this whole 20 guys and a half football field. Here's what happens next. Then panic struck the whole army, those in the camp and field, and those in the outposts and raiding parties. And the ground shook. It was a panic sent by God. So this earthquake happens, and the Philistines start freaking out. They just start freaking out. And so what happens? Saul looks out at Gibeon Benjamin, saw the army melting away in all directions. Then Saul, remember they're all hanging out by themselves over here. Then Saul said to the men who were with him, muster the horses and see who has left us. When they did, it was Jonathan and his armor bearer who were not there. Saul said to Ahijah, bring the ark of God. At that time, it was with the Israelites. And while Saul was talking to the priest, the tumult in the Philistine camp increased more and more. So Saul said to the priest, withdraw your hand. Then Saul and all his men assembled, assembled with one sword, and went to the battle. They found the Philistines in total confusion, striking each other with their swords. Those Hebrews who had previously been with the Philistines and had gone up with them to their camp went over to the Israelites, who were with Saul and Jonathan, when all the Israelites who had hidden in the hill country of Ephraim heard that the Philistines were on the run. They joined the battle in hot pursuit. So on that day, the Lord saved Israel, and the battle moved on beyond that day. Jonathan has faith in God. He's going to show up. And God shows up in a big way. And what's super awesome about this is when all this happens, their numbers start growing. These guys that are kind of out of the post, like hanging out, like, I don't know, man. Like, odds are not forever in our favor. This is like Hunger Games 101. <laughs> but they look at it and they see that this confusion's happening, that the army is coming at them, the Philistines are fading. They're like, let's go. Everybody, let's rally. Let's get behind the sword. Let's get the Ark of the Covenant. We're in this thing together. And on that day, the Lord saved Israel. 
What do we learn from this story? What do we take away about Jonathan as we're trying to learn who he is and kind of figure out who, who this guy is? Well, first, we see that he is a brave and skilled warrior. There is no doubt. If you can free solo climb a cliff and then knock out a bunch of guys, that's pretty sweet. That's pretty sweet. We also see that he's a leader. None of that would have happened if he didn't take the lead, if he didn't walk out and that he was a man of faith, that he had faithfulness to God. That he's like, I'm trusting you, you're going to show up, i got this plan, if you say this, I'm going to do this. None of it would have happened if he hadn't done that. And at last, God honors Jonathan's faithfulness. God's like, cool, you did your part. Now I'm going to do mine. And he sends your faith. Both in victory and in supporting one another, this is what happens. So they have this massive victory of like, God shows up. That's a really cool thing. It's a really cool story. And what happens next? King Saul makes a very boneheaded move. I, again, I am not a military guy. I am not, I, I literally, like, I mean, I can play some chess, all right? But, I mean, that's about as military as I'm getting. I'm like, all right, knight to, you know, queen's e5. And that's, that's as close as I'm getting, right? But... I kind of think that one of the dumbest things you could do is, after you get done with a huge battle and you're going into another, is to not eat. It's to look at your guys and be like, hey, I got this idea, I'm king, everybody, we're not eating. We're going on a fast. I know you're probably hungry and starved. Jonathan, you just free climbed a cliff and took out a bunch of people. I'm sure you're hungry. But guess what? Nobody's eating. That's just dumb. That is not a wise move. But he's king. He makes it. And Jonathan, he doesn't hear it. He wasn't around when it happened. And so they're walking along, and Jonathan sees some honey, and he doesn't know. He's hungry. He takes some of the honey. And then they gather around, and then Saul does what Saul does. And he gets paranoid. He's like, oh my gosh, I don't know if God's with us. Like, I, I, I don't know if God's with us, if he's going to be with us in this next battle. I don't know. Like, Are you serious? Like, did you just see what happened over there? That was amazing. What do you mean you don't think that God's with us? And so he starts figuring out what happened, and then it turns out that he realized that Jonathan ate the honey. And Saul looks at him and he says, Ever be so severely on me, Jonathan, if I don't kill you right now. This just escalated fast. <laughs> we went from zero to 60 in a very short amount of time, right? Five seconds ago, we were kicking butt. God was with us, this earthquake happened, we took down a bunch of people with two swords. You don't think God's with us, and now you want to kill your firstborn son? He's angry. He's also king. He can kind of do almost whatever he wants. So he makes this decree as king, and guess what happens? The entire army, the people that he's supposed to rule over as king, they step up and like, you know what? No. No. You're not touching Jonathan. You're not going to hurt him. You're not going to kill him. That is not happening today. So you have what in this, in this realm where Saul is supposed to be the ruler and the king, and what the king says, you do. You have an entire army that steps up like, no. No, you're not hurting Jonathan. Not today. So we learn that the people love Jonathan. 
He is beloved and he was followed to the point that they would even stand up to protect him against the rule of their king. That says a lot about Jonathan. This is a lot about the person that he is and the person that they see him to be. And that leads us into the next story that's huge in this is a story that probably more of us might have heard before, and it's the story of David versus Goliath. If you're not familiar with it, it's a story where basically there's this kid named David who shows up. He's supposed to be there to hand stuff out to his brothers. And as we talked about, the Philistines and the Israelites are at war. They're going against each other. And if you've ever seen Troy, this happens at the beginning of Troy. It's this idea that, like, you know what? Instead of all of us killing each other, why don't we send out our best warrior? We'll send out our best guy. You send out your best guy. They'll fight each other. And whoever wins, they win the battle. That's, that's the plan. That's the deal. It's a little unfair because the Philistines have a guy named Goliath who's a giant. If you've ever seen the movie Princess Bride, you got Andre the Giant, right? Can you imagine fighting that guy? Like, totally decked out? I, that, that's maybe terrifying. So that's a little bit of an advantage. But like, guess what? That's our guy. All right, Israel, what's your guy? You guys pick. Who are you going to send out? The author doesn't say anything in this story about Jonathan, which I find interesting. Because in the story, we just hear that. I'm like, wait a minute. This guy is a warrior. He's a leader of the army. This is a big shout out. I'm sure he's there. But the author doesn't say anything about it. Now, I have my theory about what may be happening in this moment, and it's complete conjecture. And I can go into it at length, but in short, I believe that he probably was there. But King Saul probably didn't want him to fight. Remember what we know about Saul. He's an, he's an insecure guy. He's a paranoid guy. And what just happened? Saul doesn't feel, remember, that God's with him. He's concerned about that, but he sees that God's clearly with Jonathan. He's clearly with him. Saul's supposed to be the ruler and leader of the people. What happens? The entire army stands up to him to protect Jonathan. Jonathan, as we find out later, he's not just a warrior, but one of his best weapons of choice is a bow and arrow. I don't know about you, but I'm not getting in hand-to-hand -hand combat with a giant. Like, I'm probably going to find my distance, and I'm probably going to find a way to do that from afar. Jonathan is not only a brave, skilled warrior, he probably has the best chance of anybody of making it through alive against him. And we know that Saul is not really concerned about him dying, because just moments ago he was going to kill him himself. So he's not trying to preserve him. Again, it's complete conjecture on my end. But looking at what we know about Jonathan and looking at what we know about Saul, I think it's a possibility. And regardless, though, of whatever happened there, what's interesting is that whether Jonathan fights or not, it sets the stage for David to step up. So David goes out, he gets a sling of stone, and he slays Goliath. The people love him, they follow him, they sing songs about him. He actually ends up getting one of Saul's daughters as his wife, not a bad deal in the end. So he becomes part of the family. And probably what Saul maybe feared the most out of all of that it happened. Whether he intended it to or not, David steps in and he becomes the person that the people loved. Do you remember a little while back when I mentioned that Samuel says to him that, hey, your kingdom will not endure, but God has appointed a man after his own heart and he's going to be a ruler of the people? Turns out that's David. Saul didn't know at the time. Nobody there probably knew at the time, but that's David. 
And it's really sweet to see this work out. What's interesting is you take that and it's like, well, that's great, but how does that relate to Jonathan? I don't know about you guys, but if I just met someone where I'm like, oh, dang, that's the guy? That's the guy that's going to take my throne. I got that birthright. I'm supposed to be king. I'm the prince for crying out loud. And this shepherd boy, this kid is going to be king? Probably for some of us in the room, myself included, that may not jam so well with us. But how does Jonathan respond? He becomes his friend. And not only does he become his friend, he becomes his best friend. What's beautiful about this is it actually says, after David had finished talking with Saul, Jonathan became one in spirit with David. And he loved him as himself. He loved him as himself. So he is not only being faithful to his father Saul, who tends to screw things up, he's faithful to God, but then he's also faithful to the one that God has chosen. To say, you know what? I get it. God's chosen you to be king. I'm going to be faithful to God. What enters next into the story is this weird drama of life and death. What ends up happening is that David comes in, and he's really good with the harp, by the way. Like, he's a really talented musician. And Saul, going back to his anger issues, like David kind of calms him down. It's like beauty and the beast, but kind of not. <laughs> so he kind of calms him down. He brings him down a notch. And, and then what turns in is Saul's jealousy gets the best of him. And he becomes paranoid. He tries to kill David. And so David runs away, and then Saul chases him. And then it, this happens. Like not once, twice, but it, it, this is an ongoing relationship. <laughs> and David, interestingly enough, has more than one time where he can end up killing Saul. And he doesn't. And Saul's like, oh, man, I'm so sorry. Let's all hug it out. It's cool. Come on back. And then guess what? Saul gets angry again. I'm going to kill you, David. David runs out. He chases him. It just goes on and on and on. Okay? And eventually, this comes to a head. It finally comes to a point where David feels like, man, you know what? I don't think I'm going to make it. I got this feeling that I'm just, I've been doing this a long time. I'm not, I'm not going to be able to make it. And so he comes to Jonathan, and they start talking. David's kind of on the ropes, and they have this dialogue together, and they come up with a plan. And Jonathan's like, look, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to find out a way to know if my dad wants to kill you or not. So here's, here's the plan. Like, There's a feast tomorrow night, and you're not going to be there. And if my dad asks me where you're at, I'm going to tell him that you went home. You went home, and there's something going on there. And if he says that's cool, then we know that it's all right. You can come back. It's okay. But if he asks where you're at and I tell him that, hey, he's not here and he gets angry, then we know that he does plan to kill you. Now you should probably go. You should probably go. So they're talking about this and they figure out this interesting way with Jonathan's arrows that there's going to be a code that he's going to communicate to him, whether it's okay or whether he needs to go. And they're having this dialogue with one another, and they make a promise. And I want us to take a moment and look at this promise. It's found in 1 Samuel chapter 20, verses 14. This is Jonathan speaking. He looks at David and says, But show me unfailing kindness, like the Lord's kindness, as long as I live, so that I may not be killed, and do not 
ever cut off your kindness from my That evil on the Lord has cut off every one of David's enemies from the face. There's a lot there that I want us to look at for a second. Remember that the position of the upper hand is really in Jonathan. Jonathan is the prince, and to be fair, like David's life is kind of on the ropes. Jonathan, all he has to do is literally do nothing. And there's a good chance that David's going to end up getting killed and that he's going to end up becoming king. He doesn't do that. And as they're talking, though, he has the upper hand and know that. And what's interesting, though, is as they're talking, Jonathan says to David, hey, show me unfeeling kindness like the Lord's kindness as long as I live so that I may not be killed. Does that kind of stand out to you? He has the upper hand, and he's talking to his best friend, and one of the things he says is like, hey, can you not kill me? Would it be okay if you didn't kill me? You see, at that time in the world that if you came and you took a throne, if there was an incumbent family and you took over, the MO is you killed everybody. Anybody that had a potential shot at that throne, anyone that would have an, even an ounce of title to stand up and say, I should be on that throne. I have a birthright. I have a lineage to that. To rally people around them and against you. So in this time, what happens is if you took over, you cleaned house. You cleaned house. You killed everybody. The fact that Jonathan is looking at his best friend and having to ask that tells us how real that was. That's real. But this unfailing kindness, he says, basically, like the Lord's kindness, as long as I live, he says, and do not ever, do not ever cut off your kindness from my hand. He's asking him to make a promise. He's looking at him and saying, hey, no matter what happens here, if I make it through, please don't kill me. But no matter what, no matter what, can you promise me that you're going to take care of my family? You see, I think something's going on right now that we're going to get to in a second. But I think that Jonathan has come to terms with the reality in his mind. We're going to see that in a moment. So they, they make this promise to each other, and they go back, and Jonathan ends up going in, and they have this feast, and King Saul's like, hey, where's David? Where's David at? And Jonathan says, hey, he's, he's home. I told him it's okay to go home. Saul gets angry. Not only does Saul get angry, but he picks up a spear and he throws it at Jonathan. Like, again, zero to 60 with this guy. That is the second time that he's tried to kill his own firstborn son. He's got anger issues. And I don't know if there's more clear of a sign for Jonathan to know, like, yup, it's not safe. <laughs> it is not safe for you to be around. My dad is not a happy camper. And so the next day, he walks out, and it begins the story of the shooting of the arrows. It's the one that we started with today. And David is out there hiding, and Jonathan ends up shooting his arrows, and he says the code. He says the code that David's life is in danger. And he sends the boy who was fetching his arrows into town, and then comes this one last moment. They're alone. No one else is around. And it begins what I like to look at as it's their last said goodbye many times before, but this one, this one they know. It's the last one. 
We pick up our story here in verse 41. And it says, After the boy had gone, David got up from the south side of the stone and bowed before Jonathan three times with his face to the ground. Then they kissed each other and wept together. But David wept the most. Jonathan said to David, Go in peace, for we have sworn friendship with each other in the name of the Lord, saying, The Lord is witness between you and me, between your descendants and my descendants forever. And David left, and Jonathan went back. As I was reading this, this phrase stood out to me, this phrase of, but David wept the most. And reading that, I started thinking, like, why, why would the author put that in there? Why is that something that he felt was worth noting? And so it made me start looking at a little bit more what, what's happening here. Remember, David's scared that, hey, I've been appointed to be king. Like, God said that. I've been anointed. But I'm terrified that I'm going to die. Do you remember when Jonathan goes up and he fights the Philistines and he says to his armor bearer this statement? He says that whether by many or by few, none can stand up against God. And none can stand up against God. He knows and believes that God is powerful and that if, if God wants it to happen, it doesn't matter how many people there are. So if God has said, David, you're going to be king. You are the anointed one. This is going to be your role. Jonathan is confident that that will happen no matter the odds. And he's saying to David, like, look, you're going to make it out okay. I believe that. I have faith in God that that's going to happen. And I'm going to do everything that I can to make sure that that happens. Whether it's my life, I'm putting at risk for yours. I'm going to be faithful to you. I'm going to be faithful to I think that's going to be true. What's interesting, though, what's interesting as we look at this, Jonathan, when he makes that promise, he asks David, he's like, hey, look, show that unfelt kindness to my family. Show that to my family forever. Because in his mind, like we know that David, in his mind, is going to make it through. He's like, God has promised that you're going to be the king, that you're going to be the ruler, you're going to be fine. Jonathan has no such assurance. He has no assurance that he is making it out of this story alive. And so he is looking not only at the future king, the one that would wipe out his entire family as everybody else would, but he's also looking at his best friend. And in this last moment, in their last goodbye, it's also Jonathan's last will looking at his best friend, looking at the future king, he says, you know what? No matter what happens, no matter what happens to me, promise me, you promise me, you will take care of my family. That if I, if I happen to die, if I don't make this, you promise me that no matter what happens, you will show them the kindness of the Lord, that you will take care of them. And here's the interesting part. No one else is around to see this. He says in here that the Lord is witness between you and me, and between your descendants and my descendants forever. This is not something that they wrote down. This is not something that they had a contractual agreement. This is not something that they had witnesses around. This is not something that they wouldn't told people about. It is literally a faith-based promise between two best friends to say, listen, between you and me and God, 
promised me that if things go bad, if I end up falling and you become king, that you will take care of my family. Please. And he does. He makes that promise. And it's important that he does because shortly after this, when they have their last goodbye, several chapters later, Jonathan dies. He goes out to battle. He's with his dad and he's with his two younger brothers. And they all die. It opens up the realm for David to take the throne. And that's how Jonathan's life ends. I wonder if at any point Jonathan realized that his life, his life of being faithful to other people, his life of being number two. This guy is a supporting character. I mentioned before, I've never heard anyone actually preach on this specific guy. He's lost between two other stories, and he is always number two. Always. And that never changes. And when you look at some other people, too, in these stories, like they have some pretty clear like highs and pretty clear lows. Like If you look at David, his best friend, he's got some pretty sweet highs. He's called a man after God's own heart. That says a lot. But he also has some pretty big lows. And he makes some pretty bad decisions, too. We don't see that in John. I'm sure he's a flawed person. I'm sure that he has mistakes. But he doesn't have these glaring issues. There's nothing on the checklist that you look at this guy and you're like, man, you have every right to be number one. You have every earthly right. You have every ability. Except you don't have the godly right. God's chosen someone else. I wonder if there's a point in his life where he realized that. That his life, his life of being faithful to his dad, his life of being faithful to his best friend, who would take his place as king, his life of being faithful to God, I wonder if he ever realized, man, I don't think I'm getting anything out of it. No expectations, right? No expectations. I am doing this because it is the right thing to do. Because it's the godly thing to do. The story doesn't end the way you think. We build it all up. He looks like a fantastic guy. And he's faithful to the end. That may be where Jonathan's life ends, but that's not where his story ends. You see, it continues on, and we find out that later on, Jonathan had a son. He had a son. It says in 2 Samuel verse, chapter 4, verse 4, it says, Jonathan, son of Saul, had a son who was lame in both feet. He was five years old when the news about Saul and Jonathan came from Jezreel. That means he was five years old when they found out that Saul and Jonathan and all those guys died. So they get the news that King Saul's dead, Jonathan's dead, and his nurse picked him up picked up the son, and fled. But as she hurried to leave, he fell. And he became crippled. His name was Mephibosheth. The kid's five years old. They find out that King Saul and Jonathan are dead, and they freak out, and they pick him up, and they run. Why? Because David's going to be king. He's going to clean house. That's what everybody does. Everybody comes in and cleans house. Which tells us that no one knew about this promise. 
No one knew about that deal that Jonathan and David had when Jonathan David was like, look, man, whatever happens to me, you take care of my family. Just promise me that you'll show them the kindness of the Lord. Just promise me. No one knows that. And so they freak out. They take him and they run, and he ends up falling and becomes crippled. And we find out later that his son, Mephibosheth, he lives in a land called Lodabar. And that literally translated meant the land of nothing. The land of nothing. That's a rough go. Your royalty, you fall, you become crippled, and you're exiled, you're just trying to stay alive, you don't want anyone to know where you're at, you're hiding out as a fugitive in some sense at this point, and you're living in a land of nothing. That fights. That is a rough go of it. Because he has no idea this promise that they made. He was a child of royalty. He fell and was broken and was living in a land of nothing. And then you fast forward a little bit more. 2 Samuel chapter 9. And David is king and he starts looking around and he asks people, he's like, hey, is there anyone left? Is there anyone left of Jonathan's house? Is there anyone possibly left? And eventually someone kind of says, hey, you know what? Yeah, there's, there's one left. He had a son. I know where he's at. And if you want me to go get him, I'll go get him. And so they call Mephibosheth up, and he's obedient and comes. And surely at this point, you got to know, if you're that kid, you're, you're shaking in your boots, man. You're like, I know what's about to happen. I am literally... Jonathan's son, I am the grandson of King Saul, I am the one person around left that would possibly have a right to this throne, and the king is calling me up, and he's going to wipe me out. And he goes in. And he gets there. And David says this to him. He says, I will surely show you kindness. I will surely show you kindness for the sake of your father John. I will restore you all the land that belonged to your grandfather Saul. And you, you, Mephibosheth, you will always be at my table. I will surely show you kindness. I made a promise. I made a promise. None of you guys know this. I made a promise. I made a promise to your dad. And I'm going to follow through on that promise. That for the remainder of my days, that I will be faithful to this. I will show you the Lord's kindness. I'm going to show you the Lord's kindness. And not only that, but you are going to eat at the king's table for the remainder of your days. As we look at the story and as we conclude together, we started off by just talking about this idea of faithfulness. And what would that look like if we increased our faithfulness in our lives? To our employers, to our families, to our family, to our even a God. I mentioned earlier that this is kind of like a cinematic story. It's a story that would be up on the big screen, and to me, some of the best stories come with a twist. One that you didn't see coming. Because someone may look at this story, and they may look at the story of Jonathan like, man, that's a bad rap. Yeah, that's great that he is absolutely this beautiful personification of being faithful. And yeah, there's things that I can take away from that, but okay. 
So what? He dies in the end. He just stays second. It doesn't really work out well for him. Here's the twist. Here's the beautiful twist. When they made that promise together, and they said, all my days, show the Lord's kindness to my family. And then when David meets his son, and he says, surely I will show you kindness. We get this beautiful glimpse into just a piece of what does the Lord's kindness look like. What is the Lord's kindness? When we see David show that, a man after God's own heart, when we see that he's showing this kindness, what does that look like? And what does that tell us about God? David reaches out to the orphan. He doesn't have family left. He doesn't have a dad. He reaches out to the orphan, to the one who is royal and proud, and is now broken and lame. He calls him by name, and he calls him from the land of nothing. He calls him from the land of nothing. And he restores him. He restores him to everything, and he gives him the seed of honor to sit. If we believe that David and his flaws and his greatness can just show us just a small glimpse of what the Lord's kindness looks like. That he's a person that would reach out to those that are broken, maybe in land of nothing. And that he would have pulled them out, called them by name, and restored them. What a beautiful picture that shows us. And if nothing else, and if nothing else, what a beautiful story that shows. Because the best part of David is his faithfulness. But the best part of the story is that he gives us a beautiful window into God's kindness. I don't know where you're at today. I don't, I don't know what your story is. If you walk away today, you're like, man, nothing else, it's just a good gut check for me to look at my life and my relationships and my work and my family. And what would that look like for me to maybe be a more faithful person in that? To do that without expectation. I would say that's great, but I would encourage you to think a step. I don't know where you're at in your journey in this, understanding who is this Jesus, who is this God that you're talking about, and what does that look like? But if you're at a point today where you're curious or you want to know more and you're not sure what does this look like to have faith in God and to receive the kindness of God. I would encourage you today to let's have a conversation. There are many people in the room that would love to have that conversation with you. If you're not sure to talk to you, you can talk to me. It's pretty easy. Look for the guy in the vest with the glasses. But we'd be delighted to talk to you about that today and to begin on that journey.